0: media law podcast newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom and Paul to discuss the latest headlines in media law. Today we will be covering the use of social media images to identify violent suspects by the police in the Kill the Bill march in Bristol, Julie Burchill's apology to Ash Sakar, and pro-Trump lawyer Sidney Powell's bizarre defence to a defamation claim in the US. The Kill the Bill protest took place in Bristol on Sunday the 21st of March 2021 against the proposed Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill which listeners will be aware we discussed at length in the latest newscast. Essentially it extends police powers to respond to protests. 21 officers were injured when the march turned violent and at the time of recording eight people have been arrested and the police have released images of 10 suspects that they want to trace. These images come from CCTV footage, officers body cams and over 100 private videos that were submitted by the public obtained from social media. This is a fairly straightforward question um, when it comes to privacy and the use of these images. Uh, For starters, if you're at a protest you don't really have a reasonable expectation that you won't be photographed and the police in this instance have a legitimate reason and a proportionate reason to use these photographs and pictures of people to try and identify suspects involved in criminal activity. But it's worth thinking about what is going through an officer's mind when they make these decisions in terms of um, privacy implications and weighing things up.
1: Yeah, so um, the, of course, I suppose it's quite simple that the the police uh, are entitled to um, take and share images uh, for the purposes of identifying those that they want to speak to. Uh, there's no uh, issues with that. Uh, one, is- one potential issue that could arise is if uh, the police uh, uh, retain these images um, for a long period of time, uh, especially where they retain images of people who haven't engaged in any sort of law-breaking or rule-breaking at all. Now, uh, one of the problems that we have, of course, in the moment, uh, at the moment in the uh, society that we live in is, of course, that going outside of itself calls for an explanation. Uh, and so the very fact of protesting, as we talked about in the last episode, uh, could have itself uh, attract an unwanted knock on the door from the uh, police. Uh, and one of the concerns, uh, of course, that the present climate raises is the fact that the prima facie, the police have a legitimate interest in taking the face graph of anyone that turns up uh, to a protest, indeed, anyone that is outside uh, without good reason, uh, that of itself is a bit creepy, I think, and is something uh, that we could talk about in the context of privacy.
0: But we spoke in the last newscast about how the right to protest is, in fact, allowed under the current COVID restrictions. And indeed, the Human Rights Committee has come out with a report saying that that's the, incorrect, that that's the correct interpretation of the law that the police failed to recognise around the Sarah Everard vigil. And so There will have been protesters at the Bristol March who were there lawfully and acting peacefully. Um, I guess my question is, how do the police balance the competing rights of these innocent protesters with criminal suspects when it comes to retaining videos that will have gathered up the images of hundreds of people maybe as CCTV footage of a whole street or of social media videos panning uh, across a, a crowd of people.
1: Ultimately the, the the kind of question comes down to I think a sense of proportionality but there is an element of luck involved as well because you, you would have to know that the police have retained your photograph uh, and uh, you may not know that because this process isn't transparent, certainly not as transparent as we would like it to be. Uh, There is a case on this, which is Wood and uh, Commissioner of uh, Metropolis Police, uh, which uh, gives a very uh, convoluted answer uh, to this question, but essentially boils down to uh, the purpose for which the police uh, are keeping that information and why they feel it's necessary to keep that information on file. Because one of the the difficulties that we have in talking about protest, as we know from the last talk we had on the topic, which was just last week, uh, is the tension there in this idea of legitimate protest. So the idea of protesting in itself is not legitimate in a literal sense, because going outside without good reason is of itself a bit of a a, a sort of dodgy area uh, legally um we have these rules in place that do allow the police to stop and ask questions of people who are outside full stop uh, so so sort of first of all we have we have uh, that kind of problem uh, the second is um the idea of being able to protest in peace as it were without police intervention without even being questioned by the police and so that of itself is troubling and could have a chilling effect on future protests. The idea that the police are collecting this information, they are collecting identities, let's say. I mean, we don't know whether they are, but if they are, uh, that may then lead to um, discussions with the police, either on a formal or an informal basis. Uh, the police knocking on the door. We understand you were protesting the other day. Like that of itself is slightly uh, troubling that shouldn't be happening in a in a a mature democratic society and yeah i suspect it is
0: so what what about the implications of the 10 suspects who've had their images shared by the police who were wanting to trace them for further questioning how does privacy law come into that Uh,
1: well i think the short answer is it it doesn't not in a not in a practical sense um uh now, whether it should, I think, is a, is a different question. It's a more theoretical question, um, but it only sort of comes into it uh, around the, the margins. And of course, the police are entitled to uh, share this information for the purposes of discovering people to ask questions of um, it. I, I suppose the only way, really, that this would come into the privacy domain is if we were to buy uh, Tom's argument, which I don't always agree with. In fact, I don't agree at all, that uh, privacy captures reputation. Uh, There is a sort of there's clearly a reputational dimension to having these images uh, circulated in this context, especially if. Uh, you are simply protesting exercising your right to protest that you hadn't engaged in violence towards the police certainly that would be uh, that would be a problem because the implication of course is that you were doing something violent which calls for a response from government
2: indeed the um, implication may be of quite serious violence because we now know that the police briefed incorrectly, that a number of officers had suffered broken bones uh, in the violence that ensued in Bristol. That claim has now been retracted by the police. It turns out none of the officers suffered broken bones. Now, that is not to say that the officers were not injured or that the injuries that the officers suffered suffered, um, were not injuries that should be... um, condemned as a result of the, uh, the violence that took place but insofar as there are reputational concerns here these individuals are being linked with particularly violent acts I mean there is a big difference at law between breaking bones and causing bruises it's the difference between different grades of bodily harm and criminal law um, and uh, grievous bodily harm is uh, a lot more serious an offence than actual bodily harm or common assault. Um, so <clears throat> the, the, I think that the uh, the potential impact on the individuals here could be severe, And I agree with Paul. As privacy law currently stands, uh, there is no great legal issue with the police issuing these uh, photographs and seeking to trace suspects and if, if there was it would be very difficult to trace suspects for, uh, for any crimes. Um, so I'm, I'm broadly in favour of, of, it, of it being possible. I'm um, starting with Paul on that.
0: How does that though fit with the Cliff Richards result that you don't share a suspect's um, information or identity before arrest? So these people could be perfectly innocent, but caught up in something, and yet their image has been plastered all over national media. How, how do those two um, principles align?
1: Well, I think um, what, what the Cliff Richard uh, case says uh, is, is really about the, um, the obligations that the police have uh, in terms of privacy, now I think I think the sort of critical element of uh, Richard here is is actually one that Tom and I agree on, which is that the in the Richard case there was no operational value, or no stated operational value in sharing the information, in sharing the news of the investigation. Uh, I mean the 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 investigation into uh, Cliff Richard, the footage was, as far as the court was concerned, disproportionate. Uh, to any legitimate public interest that there may have been, of course, my frustration is that the court didn't recognise that there was a public interest at stake in the first place. But that's that's a different matter. Um, well, here there there are uh, both there is both an operational defence, I think, uh, and also uh, the exception uh, that you've already alluded to, uh, Colette, The exceptions that are stated in Article Eight, Paragraph Two, apply. So even if one could say uh, that one had a, a right to privacy in these circumstances, uh, that uh, would um, be limited, is limited by, it's curtailed by uh, the, uh, the entitlement of the state to protect others. So, you know, you can interfere with Article 8 for the purposes of um, national security and protecting uh, the public from disorder. Uh, so there's, there's sort of no problems there, I think, in, in wanting to identify these individuals. Um, of course, it depends how the, the police are um, talking about this, uh, how they describe uh, the reason behind these images. But, you know, as far as I understand it, they're saying these are people that we would like to ask questions of um which is which is different from what was going on in in Richard where um Richard felt that the the insinuation was that he had done these things and belonged to a group uh, of other people that he didn't want to be connected with namely people like Jimmy Savile at uh, one final point i think we might make about the uh, the protest is of course the attention that this has received from the uh, from the media uh, plays into the government's hands uh, in a way because it allows both the government uh, and the press to other protesters to continue this theme that uh, protesters are not law abiding citizens uh, like you and I; uh, they are hooligans, and that therefore this. This power is necessary so that the uh, so that the officers so that officers can prevent uh, this kind of public disturbance taking place. And of course, the danger now is that uh, Priti Patel has the ammunition she needs to say, well, we need this bill and here's the proof. Now, my frustration with that, of course, is that we don't know uh, who these people uh, were, why they were there what affiliations they have. Uh, there was clearly uh, agitators uh, that were there, but, but also, even if there weren't agitators there, um, what happened doesn't speak to protest as such. What happened speaks to the particular climate we live in presently, uh, a climate that engenders frustration And that frustration clearly spilled out on the streets of Bristol.
2: One issue that I've heard raised is in respect to this particular protest. um, One of the problems with it is that it did not have any particular leadership. And that might well be the result of the current restrictions on organising outdoor gatherings if there if if a protest has particular leadership a that leadership can set the tone and if assuming it is a peaceful leadership of the protest can help to keep a lid on tensions that might otherwise boil over second point there is if the protest has leadership the police have someone to speak to to coordinate with and if necessary to arrest, and we have seen protests in the past where police have deliberately uh, gone in quickly uh, when things have turned sour to arrest the leaders of the the protest because, uh, you know, cut the head off the snake and uh, they can often disperse the rest of the crowd. Um, The current restrictions having made it impossible lawfully to organize a protest of this nature may, I've heard it suggested, I have absolutely no Proof of this, I'm not even sure it'd be possible to prove, but there's, there have been suggestions that it may have contributed to the disorganisation of the protest that then enabled it to turn sour when you have individuals um, losing their temper. And clearly, this happened at some point uh, uh, and, and turning violent. Um, so, you know, there's there's a question about whether these restrictions on lawful gatherings and protests. Might be exacerbating um, uh, the the problem uh, that's being reported.
0: And if you want more insight into the new protests bill and the implications for the right to protest, please listen to our last newscast on the matter. For now, though, I think we should move on to um, Julie Birchall's apology to Ash the Car which came out uh, a couple of weeks ago now. And this was after a series of highly offensive and defamatory social media posts that Birchall made of Sakaar. And the apology was, I mean, it's pretty substantial. It's um, stated how much she regrets the way that she acted, takes full responsibility, reflects on the racist implications of the statements that she made and corrects some of the... um, very Islamophobic uh, phrases that she used. And I think you know the, the thing that comes out of this is that the apology hit at a time of real heightened scrutiny of racism in the media. Um, and this is after you know, the statement that was made in the Society of Editors after the Duke and Duchess of Sussex interview with Oprah Winfrey, which accused uh, the British media of of being racist. And so having Birchall's apology made so publicly and and being so aware and acutely aware of the racism in her statements really gathered a lot of attention, um, I think maybe more so than it would have done in the first place.
2: I've never seen an apology like it. Uh, in the defamation case, it was so comprehensive, it could almost have been written by Ash herself. If, as a claimant, you wanted an apology, you would, uh, I think, be hard-pressed to find one that was more comprehensive and more groveling, frankly, than that one. I would not be at all surprised if it were uh, largely drafted by the claimant's uh, legal team. Uh, Certainly will have to have been agreed with the claimant's legal team. Um, But yes, it was uh, an an enormously uh, forthright and on the face of it, contrite uh, apology and quite right, too, because um, the things that Julie Birchall had said about Ash Sarkar were uh, emphatically vile, uh, were uh, very obviously laced with racist undertones, overtones and any other kind of tones you can think of. Uh, it was a, a series of posts that were racist, that were Islamophobic, in particular, uh, and also, I, I think, sexist, misogynist, um, and thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant. Um, I, so it is not in itself particularly remarkable to see uh, Sarkar winning this uh, case as a, you know, from the perspective of libel law. It's a libel victory and a fairly straightforward case that's been settled because it was so obvious. Um, but just the, the effusiveness of that apology, uh, I, I think is interesting uh, and may well, you find, set the tone for the kinds of apologies that claimants will demand in uh, similar situations of Twitter-based uh, libel.
1: Yes, uh, I I agree with that. I mean, one one sort of qualification I would uh draw out um in what prince harry said about racism is that he he confined it to uh the the british press uh by which uh i took him to mean uh newspapers and um i think it was necessary for the um the head of the society of editors uh, or i think it was appropriate for the uh, for the head of the society of editors to resign uh, following his extraordinary claim that uh, this was simply untrue uh, i mean there's there's you know we can talk all day long about uh, whether uh, newspapers uh, exercise their right to freedom of speech when they make um, uh, misogynistic islamophobic uh, comments um but we can't deny that they, that they do those things. I mean, there's simply no grounds on which to, to deny it. So it was extraordinary that the uh, Society of Editors would try and claim... Well, frankly, it wasn't extraordinary. It was, it was poorly executed gaslighting. Uh, and part of this, um, this, this disappointing and vindictive attempt by the British press to constantly attack... Meghan Markle and Prince Harry for having the audacity uh, to sue the the Daily Mail and the Mail Online for an egregious invasion of their privacy. What, what has happened in the British press since then is nothing short of vile uh, and it illustrates once again the need for uh, standards in the British press to come under scrutiny. Of course, that's not going to happen because of the cosy relationships between the present government and the British press. Um, there's, uh, I'm afraid uh, we have got ourselves into a very sorry mess here. The only sort of um, silver lining uh, on this dark cloud has been Julie, Julie Birchall's emphatic apology. But I'm afraid that uh, whilst I think it marvellous that she's done it on this occasion... Uh, we should be clear that there are many occasions on which she hasn't apologised uh, for what she has said. Absolutely. Every word.
0: And uh, i mean, just mentioning Meghan Markle, just to remind listeners that we are still awaiting the apology which was promised to Meghan Markle on the front page of the Daily Mail for the copyrights uh, breach, which uh, Mr Justice will be issued in a, quite an unprecedented Remedy for a copyright claim, which we discussed a couple of newscasts ago. And we will give more information on a a, a font dispute, which has happened um, when we actually have an apology, and we'll discuss it then. In the meantime, another thing to mention that's on uh, the defamation law horizon is a quite funny case that's going on in uh, America. Funny in the sense that it's depressing, but if you don't laugh, you cry, right? So, um, this is a, a key member of Trump's legal team on the voter fraud trial, uh, in the various voter tr- fraud trials, uh, who is facing defam- a defamation lawsuit by Dominion, which is a voting machine company, which is bringing its claim against power for a speech that she made and various legal documents that she produced, where she falsely stated that Dominion machines ran on technology that could switch votes away from Trump and that she claimed the technology had been invented in Venezuela to help steal elections for the late Hugo Chavez. Powell's defence runs that no reasonable person would have understood her statements to be true facts.
2: <laughs> I agree with that. So...
1: <laughs> I love this. Now, this this has a parallel, actually, in the, in the UK, would you believe? Not in a defamatory context, but actually in a press regulatory context. There was an outrageous story which um, the Telegraph published, I think it was the Telegraph, uh, carried a story written by uh, Boris Johnson about Brexit. Now, this was before he was Prime Minister, um, and I I don't think he was uh, an MP at this time either. But the Daily Telegraph's uh, defence to a charge that uh, this was uh, woefully inaccurate it was something like everyone agrees that Brexit is going to be a great thing, or you know, so many, so many uh, people, and oh well, who knows what it was? It was just Boris Johnson rambling away about Brexit. Their defence was, well, uh, no one believes what Boris Johnson says. See, he, he's sort of deliberately clown-like, and of course, everyone takes it with a pinch of salt. That was their defence, and,
0: and so they, it worked as a defence.
1: Uh, no, it didn't. No. Oh. Um, but I mean it's only press regulation, so you know, there are no consequences, obviously. Which is why we need comprehensive independent press regulation. Go on, Tom.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a magnificent defense, isn't it? It's it it, it is cakeism at its finest. Uh I'm gonna tell you this stuff because it's what you wanna hear uh and uh if it wins me the election, then I'm a genius, and if it doesn't, well, obviously, I didn't mean it, and who would be stupid enough to believe this. can't sue me uh you'd have to be mad to believe what I was saying it's just oh, it is the height of the alternative facts uh, universe in which we've found ourselves in the last few years um it's, it's it's remarkable. I can't wait to see what happens with this. Luckily, they still have juries for most libel trials in the US. So this will go before a jury and uh, uh, no doubt it'll get very funny.
1: Well, this ought to be the end of her political career because this statement, well, of course, I didn't mean it, should play out everywhere. Everyone that runs against her. Isn't that not going to be grounds for some sort of disbarment? Well, I don't, I don't know how american politics
2: and if you go out and publicly make an accusation and what you're saying is no one would have believed me in other words knowing falsity everyone knows that politicians are um, liars but she's a lawyer yes but this person's a lawyer
1: oh sorry sorry of course yeah sorry i was thinking that she was so, um, um yeah oh god that's even worse yeah no
0: definitely and and she she Made these allegations in legal documents too, so that's what could lead to the disbarment. Is oh, that's gonna yeah. be- well, surely
1: yeah. that's grounds for disbarment, surely,
0: yeah.
2: And of course, if she takes exception to what we're saying here, um, nobody would believe what we say on the media law podcast, so uh, especially not about American law, right? So, no, exactly.
0: Well, we will uh watch this one closely as it unfolds. Um, And just finally, to to finish up today, just to mention that uh, Johnny Depp has lost his appeal at Court of Appeal. They um, said that the judge handled the judgments with great scrutiny and uh, full attention to the details. And there's no need for it to be appealed. And so that's the end of that.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what we said would happen on the podcast a few weeks ago when we talked about the judgment and he announced his intention to appeal. The Court of Appeal has simply refused permission. For him to appeal, so that is the end of that matter, the end of Depp's litigation, and he skulks off back to the United States and
1: yeah, we called it uh,
2: into ignominy. Of course,
0: he's he has got a, a um libel case against Amber Heard herself in America, which uh, has yet to start. And but when that does start, we will obviously cover it for listeners. But I well, who knows? But um, I imagine it will be more of the same. Oh yes. And so that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. As ever, please follow us on social media. Thank you very much, Tom Paul.
1: Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette.
0: And we'll see you again soon. Bye.